Marina. And this, our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. I would not change it. William Shakespeare. Historical names for February include the unappealing Old English terms Solmonath, Mud Month, and Kelmonath, Cabbage Month. I'm pretty sure the Hawaiian word for February, Pepaluali, refers to neither mud nor cabbage. In Finland, February is Helmiku, the month of the pearl, when snow melts on branches and forms droplets. In Poland, it is Luti, meaning freezing cold. For Macedonians, it is the month of felling trees and chopping wood. Sechko. I was definitely in a mud month here rather than a pearl month. The mountains may have been calling, but they felt further away than ever. I had one of my occasional bouts of wondering if I should give up limiting myself to this single map. Oh, what a stupid idea all this is, I moaned. It's cold, it's wet, I could be in bed, or in barley. <laughs> Last week's snow had melted, and the world was now drenched and dull again. The month of felling trees felt relevant as I arrived in today's grid square to find swathes of cleared land, stripped and flattened, ready to build more flats and houses. Britain has a chronic housing shortage and building rates have almost halved in 50 years. The government therefore pledged in its most recent election manifesto to build 300,000 new homes a year, before giving up on that promise. We need more houses. But, on the other hand, land is a finite resource and my map feels destined to disappear beneath industrial parks and cul-de-sacs. We need homes with green areas and space to stretch our legs. But low-density sprawling developments also assume that there is infinite space to spread out across. An orange digger was carving away the earth around one of the few remaining tall trees, leaving it marooned and isolated. Scoop, spin, dump, repeat. Scores of saplings had been planted along a verge, but they were so crowded in their plastic protective tubes that few had reached maturity. It was a quota-filling exercise to say, we planted hundreds of replacement trees, rather than any meaningful compensation for the uprooted land. However, the new policy of Biodiversity Net Gain, BNG, does compel developers to try to avoid habitat loss. If this is not possible, they must recreate the habitat plus 10% extra elsewhere or buy statutory credits from the government as a last resort. Such systems are still flawed and evolving, but this is an exciting time for conservation. We have caused so much destruction, but we finally live in a time with an ever-growing appetite and momentum to leave the environment in a better state than we found it. The builders had fenced off the footpath along the river for the next four years and so sent me on a detour down a road instead. I had another flush of irritation that this project was pointless. It frustrated me to be stuck in the crowded southeast of England when I pined for wilder landscapes. 
But if I don't explore close to home, and if I neglect local landscapes in favour of exotic places, it is a further slide into being unaware about nearby nature, and then not caring or being aware about its demise, and so doing nothing to call it out. Needing a fresh perspective, I changed direction and climbed down onto the stony river beach in front of a block of new apartments. I laid my bike down and crunched over the pebbles to the water's edge. The river was wide and swift. The sky and the water were the same sulphurous hue like cold tea. Pootling up and down the shore calmed me. I carefully observed the gentle lapping of the water and the colours of the beach. Dark flint nodules, white lumps of chalk, cracked red bricks, green slime, glossy black seaweed and a child's pink rally bicycle in the grey mud. A flock of red shank, dappled brown with long red legs, probed with their long bills. I indulged in a spot of mudlarking, finding a steering wheel and a football among the usual flotsam and jetsam of broken bottles, flip-flops, traffic cones and shopping trolleys. A pulsing mass of sandhoppers thrived in all this junk. They looked like a cross between a shrimp, a woodlouse and a flea, with semi-translucent bodies and outsized back legs. Sandhoppers are less than a centimetre long, but can leap 30 times that distance with a flick of their rear end. They scavenge, shred and eat almost anything, which helps to break down decaying matter washed up on shorelines. But these amphipods also contribute to the microplastics crisis in our oceans by shredding plastic bags into over a million microscopic fragments, which then disperse through the food web and become impossible to remove. I headed onwards along the river's bulky flood barriers. Someone had once walked down it before the concrete set, leaving footprints as a ghostly reminder of their passing. So many footsteps have walked this way over time. The community linked to the river for thousands of years, piling new buildings onto old ones, history on top of history, always changing and evolving and beginning again. Ghosts and footprints, beginnings and endings and more beginnings. Take, for example, the grand house I was surprised to discover among the modern developments. Perched on a grassy hill at the end of a boulevard, it has a history reaching back to the 14th century when the manor was home to nuns before becoming a country house for Henry VIII. Today's owner is an oil billionaire with an African model wife and eight kids whose family featured on a reality TV show about Britain's flashiest families. There was once a nautical training college down this way too, preparing cadets to serve in the Merchant Navy and on the famous Cutty Sark. In 1883, Cutty Sark set sail on a record-breaking voyage. In order to make the most of the trade winds, Captain Woodgate travelled further south than other commanders dared to do, way down into the latitudes of the Roaring Forties. Below 40 degrees south, there is no law. Below 50 degrees south, there is no God warned sailors of the age. The ship faced gales, massive waves and frequent icebergs, but Cutty Sark dominated the wool trade for a decade. After loading 4,289 bales of wool and 12 casks of tallow in Australia, she turned for home, arriving 25 days faster than any other ship of the age. 
Australia no longer seemed so far away and our perception of the world shifted a little. Having both sailed and rowed across the Atlantic, I can imagine how this sudden shrinking of great oceans felt like a seismic change in the order of things. On this built-up square, I hadn't thought to look for the symbol for cliffs on my map, but there they were. The jagged lines marked some white chalk cliffs in a wooded park by the river, dotted with follies that had become home for a population of pipistrelle bats. Although a common pipistrelle is so small that it can fit into a matchbox, it still eats 3,000 insects in a single night. Pigeons nested on the cliff faces that were their original habitat before they discovered the vertical cliffs of urban buildings. A woodpecker drummed in a tree and thrushes sang their enthusiasm about the approach of warmer weather. I had thought this square was going to be uninspiring, but there was so much here I never knew about. Feeling cheerful now, I pedalled through a new housing development out into a scruffy landscape of tired industrial units. Plastic flapped in the wind and snagged on barbed wire fences, known in Ireland as witches' knickers. There was litter everywhere, crushed beer cans mostly. It was the sort of no-man's land where you'd be smart not to hang around taking photos of the scaffolding businesses run out of porter cabins with gleaming black Range Rovers lined up outside. The sight of a pylon beyond the small industrial estate lured me to the very edge of my grid square and perhaps a tad beyond. But this was no ordinary pylon. It was enormous, soaring skywards over the salt marsh and dominating the sky. Its stark symmetry was appealing in its own way. I really enjoy places like this. Topophilia describes a special love for peculiar spots, a form of place attachment. W.H. Auden, who coined the term, stressed that it had little in common with nature love and emphasised an infusion of history and story into the landscape. I had to ride through a strange, empty edgeland to reach the pylon, the relics of an old concrete works, now covered in pothole tracks with keep-out notices, scrubby thickets, grubby grass, silver birch saplings, stone chats, graffiti tags, colourful flowers such as celandines, with what D. H. Lawrence described as their scalloped splashes of gold, and everywhere the glimmer and sparkle of broken glass like winter frost. The 190-metre-high pylon held a 400-kilovolt cable that stretched far over the river. Its base was fortified with CCTV cameras, railings and electric fences. It seemed an ideal model for Pylon of the Month for the Pylon Appreciation Society. Life membership, £15. I had intended to turn around when I reached it, but beyond the undergrowth, I spotted the tall mast of a wooden boat. Intrigued, I pressed on farther towards what was to become one of my favourite hidey holes on the entire map. I had stumbled upon a creek tucked away from the main river and folded into the marshy shore. It was low tide, so the creek was just a muddy riverbed lined with reeds. It was home to a fantastic ramshackle flotilla of boats. Moored among the rotting houseboats were two graceful wooden barges both around a hundred years old. They used to carry cargo to Spain or ferry cement to Cornwall, returning loaded with granite or china clay 
from the Cornish Alps. Marina is too grand a term for the dilapidated walkways hammered from pallets, for the driftwood cabins and the curious craft in various states of what I suspected were eternal repairs. But this discovery was more alluring than a shiny, impersonal marina anyway. The peeling hulls, scuttled boats and wobbly homemade jetties reminded me of the swamps of North Carolina or the bayous of Louisiana. The only sound came from a small man with a wizardy face. He had a goatee beard and a flat cap and was whacking a rusted trailer wheel with great determination. His young grandson patiently watched the hammer wielding. The man told me he was renovating a little motorboat so the two of them could go out fishing. I admired the idea, but hoped the lad could swim. Oh, we go right out, far out. There's cod out there, whitings, flatties, flounders and that. Most people like it when you express an interest in their place. Sure enough, between hammer blows, he shared his stories. He spoke fondly about the owls that lived on this scrappy marsh, the hovering kestrels and the nightingales that churred their famous song on late summer nights. He lamented that all this liminal nature was the scene of a planning battle between conservationists and developers with ideas to cash in and modernise the area. It would be a tragedy if this boatyard and creek were paved over to make a car park. I said goodbye to the man and left him to his repairs, then cycled down the main riverbank to set up my camping stove, make coffee and take it all in. Yes, there were shopping trolleys in the mud and shocking amounts of plastic rubbish but I was in high spirits as I sheltered behind an enormous concrete block spray-painted with ahoy and a smiley face. At the start of today, I'd been questioning what I was doing, but the grid square had answered with so much history and surprising beauty. Maybe I wasn't done with this project.